Hello and welcome to Better Under Pressure. I'm Sarah Milne-Rowe, author of The Shed Method and founder of Coaching Impact. And in this podcast, I talk to leaders from all walks of life about being better under pressure and using pressure for better. I want to explore how we handle pressure in a world that is becoming more and more complex, the impact that that pressure has on our ability to perform at our best and what we do to be better under pressure. What's happening is there's this giant wedge that is going to drive through society. On one side of the wedge, AI is helping you to create faster than you've ever created. And on the other side, it's helping you to consume more than you've ever dreamed. Those who get caught in the web of consumption, it's a complete bottomless pit. You will spend your entire life glued to a screen, consuming, watching, listening, buying, unending drain on your attention. Those who learn to create with AI are going to spin up tens of million dollar companies with three or four friends, superstar little kids who by age 25, they've got multiple $10 million companies. They're insanely wealthy because of the digital assets they created, software and media and IP and tech, and they'll have brought it to life, made it entertaining and made it fun and all that sort of stuff. So you're going to have the hyper consumers and the hyper creators, and it'll just be a chasm between the two. Today, I'm talking to Daniel Priestley entrepreneur, author, and speaker. Since the age of 21, he has started, bought, and sold multiple businesses in training, publishing, IT services, and tech. He's written best-selling books like Key Person of Influence, Oversubscribed, and Entrepreneur Revolution, and is known for his work on entrepreneurship and business development, offering practical advice to entrepreneurs on scaling their business, personal branding, and becoming influential within their industries. In our conversation, Daniel discusses the pressure of going through a buyout, what it's like when your business goes from zero to a million in 12 months, and why it should all be fun and games. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on Better Under Pressure. You and I have had many conversations about what we do with pressure, so let's dig into this one. I was just under pressure. (laughs) You were? (laughs) Just then. (laughs) I was getting a file uploaded and I had two things overlapping and I hate being late and I hate when things overlap. So, so what a, what a, what a relevant time to be talking about this. So true. So true. And also the way you recovered was through your body, which I really loved. So, so Daniel, tell me how you experience pressure now. It's a funny one because I was having this chat yesterday with one of um, my friends and we were talking about how everyone experiences pressure very differently. Um, so she actually said to me, I have no idea how you do it. You've got eight different companies. You've got a hundred different people on the team. Uh, each company has its own challenges and problems. Um, each company is a different type of business. We've got publishing, we've got software and technology training and development, um, PR, uh, you know, like ranging from essentially B2B services right through to tech. It can, you know, that, that is kind of sold like a consumer tech. Um, so multiple teams, multiple time zones, uh, plus three little kids and publishing deadlines. Um, I've just submitted another book to the publisher. Um, so I don't know. Uh, she was basically saying, like, like obviously I must have a very high threshold for taking on <laughs> taking on projects. Um, so I'm not an expert in how I do it. I just crack on. Um, I have I have my coping mechanisms. Yeah. Um, one of my coping mechanisms is having an assistant who schedules mm. my diary. Right. So that's one of the big, that's one of my top secret secrets. 
that I've got an assistant who makes sure my diary is scheduled and I kind of just do what's in my diary. Yeah. You know, already that is interesting, Daniel, because I think something very specific about an entrepreneurial way of life where on one level you are very much your own agent and partly why you become an entrepreneur, I imagine, is because you want to be your own agent. And yet there seems to be a resistance that I pick up anyway around putting your support mechanisms around you in order to be able to actually be that entrepreneur in the way that you want to be it. And I think that one point you've just made there around having having someone who's looking after your diary. I mean, I, I so agree with you. Um, it took me a long time, however, to let go of my diary. I mean, it felt like someone had taken my clothes off. You know, it was like, oh my God, I'm now completely revealed to somebody else and they're in charge of me. Yeah, but actually true. having done it, blimey, what a difference it makes. But this, this, this idea of support systems to reduce the pressure, particularly in the world of an entrepreneur, I think is interesting. Yeah. And especially, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, it's almost like bringing people onto a team is seen as the worst negative ever. It's like, oh, the cost, the overhead, you know, bringing a person onto the team, you know, I just don't want people. I don't understand it. I think, the, you know, you can't manufacture more time for yourself personally, but if you've got 100 people on a team working seven hours a day, you've got 700 hours a day going into the yeah. development of the business. Like, why, why wouldn't you want that? So yeah. that's interesting as well. I mean, I think that whole little mathematics that you just did there, you skidded over the maths, but I, it's the idea of what's really helped me is to think, yes, and it's an investment. So, so let's take something really stupid, like an investment of going first class on a train, mm -hmm. you know, versus risking whether you're going to get a seat or not. I, I really mm -hmm. struggled with that actually on a, on a lot of, in a lot of ways. But when I, when someone said what you've just said, Daniel, which is think of the time you'll get back from being able to do something like read an article or write an article or, mm -hmm. you know, dig into some client stuff. It's that trade-off, isn't it? To think, actually, I'm buying back time. I'm not buying more. I'm buying back time, which I think is an incredibly helpful pressure reducing way of thinking. I've always had this feeling that when you calculate your own rate, like what is the hourly rate that you can command or what's your time worth? As soon as you realize that there are things that you can outsource that are less than that rate, you really should. You should definitely do that, <laughs> you know. Um, but the condition is obviously that you do the thing that is worth a lot of money, you know. So if you book a first-class seat on a train and that frees you up to write a blog or an article that's going to be seen by a 1,000 people and, you know, the first-class ticket cost an extra £100, well, okay, that's pretty good use of uh, use of time because it's like ten p per person who saw that article. Uh, you know, so it was actually not not a bad use of time. The idea that you might get cleaners to come into the home and and you know do the cleaning, well, that's actually a pretty good idea if you pick up the phone and make one sales call. You know, if you fire off a few emails that um, that only you could fire off. I, I get a lot of stress from scheduling. Like I really. There's a couple of reasons I get stressed out with scheduling. It's just not how my brain works. I, I hate like looking at blocks of time and figuring out when something's going to fit. Um, I always miscalculate how much time it'll take me to get from point A to point B. And I, you know, and I always massively underestimate things like, you know, I think, oh yeah, it'll be 10 minutes between that and that and nothing will go wrong and nothing will overrun. So I'm terrible at that. I also hate saying no to people. I just hate it. I'll get someone who messages me and says, hey, look, I'm starting my very first podcast. I've got no episodes and I've got no social following and I've got nothing. Going. Can I get you on the podcast? And I'm like, oh, okay, because I can't say no. Um, whereas if I send that to my assistant, Susie, and she goes, no, sorry, 
it's not going to fly provided I don't know about it. I'm like, well, I did my bit. I sent it through to my assistant. So uh, it allows me to function without triggering the stuff that really drags me down. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say, Dan, is the worst pressure you've ever experienced? There was a period of time for five years that was very high pressure um, for me. Um, And what it was is that through a really nasty fight, I had to buy out a business partner. And part of the buyout was cash up front and part of it was a five-year pay down of of a remaining balance. Essentially, this was a massively unproductive use of capital. This was thousands and thousands of pounds a month, every single month um, that went out of the business that was just a useless... I was buying someone out who was just not productive um, and had to get rid of them. So it wasn't like a happy champagne moment of like an, a big exit and hasn't haven't we achieved an amazing result and now we get to reward ourselves. It's like, no, no, isn't this going so disastrously bad that I have to buy this person out and take every available cent that I've got and get rid of them? Um, so it was terrible. And it went on for five years, five years of just cash gone, gone, gone every month, every month, every month, every month. And on top of that, I had three kids in that age. So I had three kids under the age of four. It was pre-COVID. So everything happened in physical environments. So I had to travel and I had to move around. And so it, it honestly, for five years, it felt like I had this noose around my neck that I had to pay this money every month. It was totally non-productive. It was just cash out. And I had to move around and I had three little kids. It was just five years of just unbelievable pressure that didn't stop for 16. Oh, and guess when it stopped? It stopped right at the beginning of 2020 when the pandemic started. Perfect. Uh, Yeah. So, yeah. So I don't know. It'd be a better question would be when did I not have any pressure? Well, if it's it's interesting, isn't it? It sounds like it's been part of your choices from quite young, actually. I mean, you haven't gone into this life not knowing that there's a risk involved in potentially every choice you make. So it feels as you talk, like whilst you say it, there's also a little bit of like, yeah, underneath it. There's a bit of like spirit underneath all of that, which to be feels- honest. To be honest, I I somehow have always had this backdrop of intense pressure. I started my first company at 21. We went from zero to a million of revenue in the first 12 months and then 10 million of revenue by year three. And that sounds really cool. Like it sounds awesome to go really super fast growth. It's insane. It's totally intense. And it's like seven days a week and it never stops. And there's just like things are breaking and... Um, and also when you're under 25 and you're doing a million dollars a month worth of sales, you very rapidly, everyone adopts the work hard, play hard culture yeah. of Friday night is going out clubbing. Saturday night is going out clubbing again. Um, all through the week is going to top restaurants, taking people out. You know, it's drinking, it's being up all night, it's selling and doing stuff all day and coming up with the next five moves through the day and then doing it all again and taking maybe a weekend off once a month and using that time to catch up on things like laundry. And it's just never stopping for for years at a time. Total insanity. Um, And that goes right back to age 21 and I'm 42 now. So I've had 21 years of (laughs) going at it nonstop. What's the cost of that? What what do you do? Like someone listening to this thinking, well, you know, what what do you do? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What do you do? I have little sayings inside my head, like I'm not digging roads. 
like Dan, you're not digging roads. You know, your business is really just having fun and running events and talking to entrepreneurs and raising money and running digital marketing campaigns and developing software. Like you're not digging roads, you're building fun products. So there's an element of what I do, which is I actually love what I do. And I love, you know, I love the work itself. Um, it's not physically demanding. It's not tedious. It's not, re- it's not repetitive or um, backbreaking or arduous or mind numbing. None of it's that. I remind myself, you chose this. I also have a saying of like, there's there's going to be plenty of time to be retired. Like suck the juice out of each year. Like get on with it. Get, make the most of each day. I'm not a big one for sitting around. If I've got five spare minutes, I'm finding something to do with it. I, I don't know what personality defect that is, but I, that's, that's how I'm wired. I have this saying called uh, your shoulders are broad. Give you more. Take on more. So you've got broad shoulders, mate. Uh, is a like uh, an internal thing of like there are plenty of people who've got way more on their shoulders than you do you're not running a country you're not a prime minister you're not you know running a publicly listed company you're just running a little group of entrepreneurial companies get on with it I find a lot of people talk themselves into stress I find like I've had obviously I've got like a lot of people on my team so some people deal with things differently and mind you I don't have this standard for anyone else in my life I don't expect anyone else to be such a crazy person Um, so I'm not pressurizing anyone else onto this but I do witness that a lot of people who tell themselves that they're stressed and frazzled and all this sort of stuff they kind of talk it into existence so I'm pretty careful to try and not talk myself into uh being uh overwhelmed yeah um gosh there's a lot in there um (laughs) yeah I mean I think I mean you know I I set this podcast up because I believe that you can grow with pressure. You know, I, I, a bit like you, I need a certain amount in my life to feel alive. (laughs) Um, but I, but I think there's a balance. Uh, I mean, I think there's a level for different people. You said it at the very start of this conversation, you know, everyone responds differently. And what I'm hearing in this is you've got quite a high level. It's been trained. I think, I think it's been trained from you though, Daniel, like if you started that at 21, you sort of built this habit of understanding what it means to you and how to deal with it. So, and it works for you, clearly. I mean, I think it's interesting you say, you know, I don't I don't have that um, expectation on others. However, I'm sure people who work for you, you're modelling that. It's very different. I mean, I work with a lot of leaders, you know, who have the same sort of belief, but those around them are like in their wake, trying to find their way out of the, you know, the waves because the expectation is an unspoken expectation just simply because of the model. Yeah, there's probably an element of that for sure. Um, It doesn't seem to play out that way though. Some of my top senior leaders are taking regular hiking breaks and going off on camping trips and doing men's retreats. And so uh, the people around me tend to have a pretty good work-life balance. Um, Because I've got uh, eight companies in the group, each company runs as its own little autonomous thing. And actually most of them run very much like lifestyle businesses. So I've put myself in a position where I've got a significant group of companies, but in the individual teams, they're dealing with just their business. I, I remember speaking to someone who was in the military who said that actually, if you're a corporal or a lance corporal with a team of eight people, life can actually be pretty chill. Whereas the in the same regiment could be extremely stressful if you're heading up um, a much bigger group of people. And within the same organization, you could get, you know, someone like Google or Microsoft where a small individual team somewhere mm. in the organization is having mm. a great old time, um, whereas the uh, the experience for the more senior team might be a lot of stress because they're managing multiple teams of teams. Yeah. 
Do you think it's to do with the size or do you think it's to do with the leadership? It's the number of people. So, you know, when you've got 100 people on a team, let's say, uh, you know, every single week there's two birthdays. Um, every single week someone's coming in and going. Um, there's bereavements. There's, you know, in a, in a given month, someone's having babies and someone's had someone pass away in their, in their family. You get team members who have cancer. Um, mm -hmm. you know, they get a diagnosis, you get team members who have serious issues with their kids, um, going on in the background. So when you've got a hundred people or a thousand, you know, as it, as it scales, when you've got lots and lots of people and there's just an amplification of all those life issues that you become aware of and that you have to juggle and have to factor in. And that's before you deal with any business issues. Yeah. So, you know, it really is just pe people come with issues. Stuff. Yeah, stuff. Yeah. So, more, more people, more problems. Yeah. And I heard in your description around what you do to sort of stay in a positive pressure, a lot of it is self-talk. You know, you've got things that you say to yourself. Is it simply self-talk? Is it simply what you say to yourself that helps you remain strong? And I sleep well. Like I actually mostly sleep pretty well and I sleep you know, consistently and deeply and all that sort of stuff. I don't have restless nights. I just hit the, hit the, hit the pillow and I'm out. The exercise thing, I notice a huge difference in my mood when I'm doing three, three workouts a week versus when I'm not. Um, if I'm doing three workouts a week, I am just flying. I can take on so much and I'm having a good time and my mood's good. And, you know, if I got no other benefits other than just the mood for me personally, like, having a fitness trainer where someone actually yeah. I can my brain can stop and I just get yeah. told what to do yeah. lovely like really nice um yeah that's my favorite thing about it it's yeah. like I just don't even have to think someone's telling me go you know you're now doing this yeah. you're now doing this you're now doing that so for that hour it's just lovely yeah um, I've heard yeah. that a lot actually on these conversations about um I, I remember talking to a CEO of a, a very um high growth company in San Francisco. And she, she said, um, I just get on that Peloton. And for the first time in the whole week, someone else is telling me what to do. Just that whole, whole thing of decision fatigue. Someone else is actually making a decision. Yeah. It's really, really nice. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. I want to go back to something that Daniel said earlier. He said, I find a lot of people are great at talking themselves into stress. And then he went on to say that he's pretty good at not talking himself into being overwhelmed. I'm really interested in this. I'm a huge fan of the phrase, energy flows where attention goes. And this statement of Daniel's goes to the heart of that. Our brain doesn't know the difference between truth or fiction. It listens to whatever we tell it. And when it comes to being better under pressure, what we say to ourselves about our situation is fundamental actually. We can so easily forget in those moments that we can choose our thoughts. We feel our body reacting, our pounding heart or tight jaw. We become our worry, our anger or our frustration. And when we become these things, we're no longer in our driving seat. Our thoughts have taken control. Our reptile and dog brain, driven by the need to stay alive and to survive, are bossing us. And it happens fast and is rarely a conscious choice. And Daniel makes a great point. We repeat the thoughts and simply fuel the pressure. It's so key to force that pause. Take a breath and notice. We have this gift to observe ourselves. We can notice what we're saying to ourselves. We can observe how we are feeling and what's happening in our body. 
No other animal has this ability. It's what makes us uniquely human. We can choose to interrupt this chain if we really want to. And Daniel clearly has phrases that help him to do this. Like, Daniel, you're not digging roads, you're building a fun product. Daniel, you've got broad shoulders. There are plenty of people who have way more on their shoulders than you do. And what makes us uniquely human is that under pressure, we have this ability to choose how we want to respond, to literally train our brain. This is what gives us the opportunity to be truly free. So as you're sort of, I mean, you know, you, you, you lead the, a, a big, big movement in entrepreneur ways of working, Daniel, don't you? Um, and, and you have also this phrase from your, your, your company, Dent, making a dent. I'm, I'm interested in how do you coach work alongside entrepreneurs who are wanting to make a huge impact, wanting to have high growth very quickly, and at the same time, have this make a dent, you know, what, what are you doing? How are you doing it? Why are you doing it? What, how do you manage that dy dynamic? Yeah, so for me, the dynamic is that we create tools, frameworks, um, resources, and then we hand those over to entrepreneurs who are passionate and then they run wild with them. You know, the, the deeper reason why I do what I do is I looked out many years ago, I looked out at the world and saw so many different problems that need solving. And I thought, I can't do all this. Like there's so many things that need solving. Um, how do I solve a bunch of these problems in the world? Like, what do I do to try and pick a problem and solve it? When I actually want to solve all the problems, I want to figure out how to fix all the things. So um, I thought, oh, if I run an entrepreneur accelerator and I get thousands of entrepreneurs choosing meaningful problems to go solve. And if I was the one who helped them to do that, then I, in effect, would have figured out a way to solve many problems. Um, you know, so if I can create an army of problem solvers, then there's going to be lots and lots of problems that get solved that wouldn't have got solved had I not done that. So for me, this was my um, my attempt to try and scale problem solving, uh, meaningful problem solving. So it's about tools and resources and handing handing stuff over. Um, to 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 amazing people. I love the way you describe that. I really do. And and, and what it radiates for me, Daniel, is it's given me an, a clue actually as to to how you manage pressure. Actually, just in the way that you've described that, because if that is on your shoulder the whole time as to the reason why you began this movement, it's worth it, isn't it? Like it's it's a galvanizing force for you. Yeah. Oh, totally. That. Yeah. No. That. That's that underlying purpose. Of, yeah. There was this time where um, I was traveling around the world and like I did things like visiting slums and seeing places where like there's um, uninterrupted pollution and like you know going to Bali where there's just waves of plastic on the beach and like all this sort of stuff and hearing about like different types of you know, environmental destruction or habitat and animals and all that sort of stuff. So it was just, it was just overwhelming. Like it was just like, God, there's so much on this planet that needs fixing. Um, so yeah, it, it is. And it is an underlying driver. Um, and there's also this other side of things that I think, you know, the other thing that motivates me is I really think that we're living through a time in history where the pendulum is swinging away from an affluent middle class and towards haves and have nots again. Um, either that or it's moving towards raising the bottom couple of billion 
but the impact on Western society is that it's decimating the Western middle class. And there's just this, like, as soon as I recognize that the technology that's coming out is going to do that, I also had this real thing of like, I've got to bring people onto the right side of the the surfing side of the wave. Like, there's going to be so many people dumped by this disruptive technology. We've got to move people onto the surf side of the wave, not not the getting dumped side of the wave. Like we got to we got to start bringing people on that uh, journey real fast, or else uh, a lot of these people are just a lot of people are just completely oblivious to what's going on in the world in terms of the massive destruction of the middle class in the West um, yeah. and how fast that is eroding. It's going to be very you know very difficult for anyone young to get a house to. Yeah. Um, all the basics of of what you would consider to be a normal social contract in the West, um, that contract is null and void at the moment. Um, yeah. It's, it's up for a rewrite. I just wanted to make sure that we're moving a group of people onto the right side of that. Yeah. And that's what's all, that's the link I'm seeing as we're talking it is the, the key motivator is this sense of how do I stay ahead of the curve? And actually, that's been my experience of you, Daniel, actually, is that you're you're constantly looking ahead of possibly the majority of us, <laughs> you know, thinking what's coming. How do I how do I highlight that? How do, and that is a that's such a galvanizing force for you. It feels like I sometimes work in businesses and I go and I'm looking at a sort of percentage of are you running the business? Are you improving the business? Are you future proofing the business? Mm. And most CEOs should be spending the majority, in my opinion, should be spending the majority of their time on future proofing their business, yeah. improving or future proofing. Now, a lot of what's happening, a lot of the pressure that's happening for a lot of the people that we're working with is that they're down running the business because of the uncertainty and the volatility of what the, you know, of the, of the environment they're operating on. And as a consequence, there's not enough future or, 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 or they feel it as like an indulgence to be able to future proof or potentially like improve. So it's like, how do you get that balance right? And what I'm hearing from this conversation is that you are firmly in the future proofing space. Yeah, if you use an analogy of a ship, you know, you really don't want the captain of the ship climbing up to the to the crow's nest looking for the iceberg that's like 100 metres ahead. Um and you really don't want the captain of the ship running down into the engine room um, looking at, you know, how the engines are running. You want you want people doing those things. You definitely want people on those jobs. Yeah. Um, but what you want is you want the captain to know where we're going, plotting a course. Like, what's the whole point of this trip? Where are we headed? Thinking well across the horizon as to what, what this whole voyage is all about and how do we know if it's successful or not and um, who are the right people to have on the boat. Yeah, uh, so absolutely. Yeah, all of those kind of things is is what the team needs from you. Yeah, yeah, it, it takes a lot of discipline, I think. And actually, you know, back to the shed, you know, back to you know, looking after yourself, being properly selfish. You know, if you're in that sort of position, you have to have your conditional success around you in order to be able to fulfil exactly what you've just described. I mean, you've spoken to Andy Salmon. I had Andy Salmon on the podcast two weeks ago, and he was just saying, you know, in the, some of the. I was trying to understand how do you in a campaign that goes on for like years, 80, you know, months, like long, long term, mm. how do you look after your shed when you're in battle? I mean, I just didn't understand how people do that. And he was basically saying the greatest commanders that he's worked with take that incredibly seriously. Yeah. And they will insist on having their sleep because they are not going to be in any fit position to lead the next oh, day totally. on some of the yeah. decisions, right? So I think this is sometimes a really neglected area when it comes to leadership. Uh, the best leaders really understand it. You know, if you were using a computer 
and the computer was red hot and the fans were just spinning and everything starts running slow. You don't just open up more programs and say, oh, well, I'm just going <laughs> to keep working on this computer. Like this, this is a computer that's about to crash and it's a computer that's not able to really run the software um, that it needs to run. You got to figure out, okay, I got to close a few things down here. I've got to restart the computer. I, I think of it as, you know, people are paying me to think and to strategize. They're paying for what goes on in my head. So I need to make sure that that's, you know, clean. Um, and look, I, I started this podcast talking about like, you know, pressure and all those sorts of things. It's contextual. My my yeah. genuine experience of most of what happens is not high pressure. You know, I do it in my diary. I do one thing at a time. I've got plenty of time to do podcasts. I've got plenty of time to write books. I block out that time and I, I focus on what I'm doing at the moment. And then I'm add things to the list and and crack on. So I don't have an experience of overhead. My, my hard drive's not overheating most of the time. No. What's your biggest piece of advice to entrepreneurs that you work with where you feel that they've got too many tabs open in their head and actually they're, they're, they're crashing or they're about to crash? No, I, I, re I regularly recommend your book. Um, I, say, <laughs> I, re I regularly say sleep, sleep, hydration, exercise, diet. It's right at the base baseline of it. Like grab mm. the book. Um, I said, you know, you, you really don't even have to read the book. You can, you can mm. look at the front cover and it kind of explains, mm. you know, essentially it's all going to come from these four things. If those four things aren't happening, that's probably where to start. Um, so I love, I love uh, your book and I love the idea of energy management and all of that. Mm. I, I often go back to frameworks. Uh, you mentioned Andy Salmon. I love military frameworks. So, mm. You know, if you've got an idea, you put a two-person scout team on it. If you've got a campaign, you put a four-person little campaign team on it. If you've got a something that you want stable, you put an eight-person team on it. If you want to have a valuable business, you put a 35-person team on it. I'm very much, I just step through, these are the steps, these are the stages, these are the people that are required to get this job done. You know, if you need capital, raise the money. Uh, if you need capital, find, you know, find the money. That's that's the problem that needs solving. I like to remind entrepreneurs that someone has solved this problem before. There is a mm. framework that exists. There's a structure that works around this. You know, take the time to just discover the framework and discover the structure. Um, get around the right people who have solved this in the past, and you know, let's have some conversations around how you know what's the priority list. What are the what are the missions that need achieving to get this thing to the next level. Um, and just also enjoy the journey. For the first time in human history, a normal average person can build a global business that has customers all over the world and leverages high technology. And you can build a business around fun, freedom and flexibility and making a difference and having an impact. I mean, even what we're doing here is absolutely mind-blowing. Like the fact that we're in two different locations, yeah. having a having a light-speed, high-definition video conversation. Yeah. It's costing next to nothing to do this. We consider this to be work, but we're just talking. And we're yeah. just talking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is the world that we work, live in right now. So it's like, wow. I, I love this reframe as well. I do a lot of reframing, I guess. Yes, I'm hearing that. Yeah. Like think of all of human history. How many How many of the humans who have ever lived would trade places with you in a heartbeat for your problems? So it's like take all these problems that you think you've got, line up all of humanity who have ever lived, and then put it in, put it to a vote. Who wants to trade places? Who wants my problems? And it's like, 
oh, wait a second, 99.9% .9 of all people who have ever lived want to swap places right now. Okay, let's suck it up and get on with it. Yeah. I mean, that sense of perspective is, is raining out of what you're saying here as well, Daniel. You've got a very good way, it sounds to me, of getting yourself right back to perspective you know, by, by reframing, by seeing different things, by placing it in a different context. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And do you do that with your team? So let's just go to you for a second in terms of leading these different people across different businesses. How do you um, help them reframe? Yesterday do? we had a leadership meeting with ScoreUp and it was funny because at one point I did say, guys, just remember, we're just building quizzes. It's, you know, we're not we're not curing cancer just yet. We're we're just building some quiz software. Um, we're having fun building a hundred million dollar business. Like let's let's just keep perspective. It's just a challenging game to play. We you know we we don't need to worry too much um, as to as to how that works out. So like there's a bit of a reframe there. And then you know the best ideas always come out to play. They don't come out to work. When it's a game, everyone has more fun. And when it's more fun then the game gets played better. And when it's played better, then you win the game. Often it's the person who's having the most fun that's winning the game. Yeah. So, you know, which yeah. comes first, chicken or the egg? Do you win the game and then have fun or do you have fun to win the game? I, I'm not a big fan of taking it all too seriously. It's like, hey, let's let's just set up a game and the game is called build a software business that's worth 100 million. That's a lot of fun. It's so funny you should say this because um, a couple of nights ago, I went to see a film. It's called How to Have Sex directed by somebody who used to share a flat with my son. And she had this idea about 10 years ago. And my son was telling me this, you know, she said, oh, I've got this idea about, you know, girls that go away on holiday. I'm just going to write it. And she just wrote it. Now, this this film has like, she was on the front page of The Observer at the weekend as being I up and coming talent. Yes, Molly, Molly, Molly Manning. Just listening to her, she stood in the theatre at the South Bank two days ago. And she said, this is where I stood when I graduated 10 years ago, you know, when I was showing my exam pieces. And here I am, you know, with an idea that basically she had a lot of fun with. When I was talking to my son about it, he was just saying she just wasn't she just wasn't stressed about it. She was just saying she's, you know, she sent the idea off to Channel 4 and and, and boom, Channel 4 went. So, you, know, you know, have you read Click Moments by Johansson? But he, he talks about, you know, some things, some things you have to work hard at. But, you know, other great things happen just because they happen. Because of a moment uh, in time. As I've kind of alluded to, there's different types of working hard. There's working hard by choice. Um, there's working hard on a meaningful problem. There's working hard, uh, you know, on something that is exciting and engaging and is a good game to play. It's still working hard, right? But it's like zooming out and having the perspective of I'm not being forced to dig a road here on minimum wage. I've chosen to play a fun entrepreneurial game. It's hard. It's stressful. Yeah. Like even, even when I was going through the time of having to pay out that business partner, like I kept reminding myself, I chose to buy him out. Like I could have shut the whole business down. I could have pushed the business into insolvency and started again and I wouldn't have had to pay him out. I made this choice. I, made, I also chose to have kids. I chose to have three kids. You know, it's just a game. And of course the game's got to be hard at times or else it wouldn't be fun. Like if you go and play a kid's game, snakes and ladders, that's not going to keep you interested very, very long. Roll the dice and go up and down a snake thing. It's just not, it's not hard enough to keep you engaged. So, the, you know, the smarter you are, the more conscientious you are, you're going to have to kick doors off hinges or else it's not going to be fun. Yeah. I love that connection between kick doors. <laughs> kick doors off hinges and fun. Like that's like a heady combination, isn't it? 
Yeah. Well, my, for me, kicking doors off hinges means things that just don't happen easily. Like yeah. you're looking for the door handle. There is none. Okay. This door needs kicking. This one's not one that opens easily. We have to kick the door off this hinge. We're going to have to do a whole bunch of repetitive stuff. We're going to have to do forceful stuff. We're going to have to come up with all sorts of brute force solutions to get this thing across the line. We need to throw some time, energy, effort, and creativity and maybe some repetitiveness at this. Uh, but it's like, we've got to, you know, that's the door we've got to get through. So we've got to kick it off its hinges, that one, you know, but that's fun, right? That's, that's. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just want to talk to you a little bit about your interest in education at the moment, because you're writing, you've written a book around entrepreneurial kids. How do you think this conversation we're having around pressure about your ability as a human being to manage pressure and emotionally regulate what do you think about that and what's happening in education and what insights, Daniel, would you say are absolutely vital if education is going to prepare the younger generation for the future that we've got? Well, it's, re- it's a really hard time for education because the educational system was really built and designed for the industrial age. And in the industrial age, there's a good chance that a kid is going to get out of school and get a local job. Um, working on site in a some sort of a white white collar or blue collar factory, they're going to do very repetitive work, and what the employer is going to be looking for is component skilled labour. They're going to want a set of skills. They're going to want someone who's you know component. They fit in. They just like they slot straight into the organisation, um, and that they just work. They do repetitive. Uh, work and they've got the skills to do it and they don't need much management. That's the employer's dream in the industrial age. But what's happening at the moment is a couple of things. So the first thing that's happening is that the nature of work is radically changing and people don't realize just how much this is going to change. In five years time, the best GP that you will ever encounter is an AI and the best architect will be an AI, and the best engineer will be an AI, and the best coder will be an AI. Your accounting will be done by an AI, and the audit on large companies will be AI-driven. Everything will translate into whichever language you want to learn it in, and that will automatically happen through an AI. And if you want the language on a page to be different, let's say you get a website and it's not engaging you, you can just kind of say, give me a summary of this, um, make it funnier, and the AI will just rewrite the words on the page in a way that you prefer to absorb it. All of this stuff is is happening. What you would describe as the functional layer of work is just going to be like done. If the work used to happen on a keyboard and a screen, such as legal, accounting, PR, marketing, all of that is just done. And it's done by someone who has a much higher IQ than you, who's free. They work instantaneously everywhere all at once and they're free. We're moving into a world of work where the the abundance of labor um, dilutes the cost down to zero. And then there's this real existential, well, what do humans do? For many, many years, we, we gathered in tribes, we told stories, we formed communities, um, we concerned ourselves with relationships, we concerned ourselves with who's getting married to who. In many respects, we need to go and have a look at the ultra-rich families um, in the world. How are they functioning? Because they don't have to work. They've got everything covered. Um, how do they find meaning in their lives? How do they fill their days? Um, you know, they go to TED Talks and conferences and um, and they travel and they, you know, do all that. Well, you know, most of society is going to have to find a version of that. 
Um, in the ultra-rich families, there's a lot of depression, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of mental illness um, because they don't have the same guardrails keeping them on the straight and narrow. They can go down unproductive rabbit holes with zero consequences or zero guardrails. So we're going to have to look at how the ultra-rich families have solved this problem in the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years and then figure out those solutions for everyone. So the world of education is going to have to prepare kids for this completely different world that doesn't require a lot of component labor. There's a difference between vitality and functionality. So vitality mm -hmm. is being an irreplaceable life force, being a disruptor, being attention-seeking, being a storyteller, being a joke teller, being unpredictable, making things happen, enrolling people into new ideas, creating un. Uh, unexpected play. So all of that's vitality. Kids do that really naturally yeah. um, and we beat it out of them. You know, we machine them into little parts that fit inside bigger machines. There's the mental paradigm of cogs versus nodes. A cog is something that fits into a machine. A node is something that joins a network and energizes and adds to the network. So in education, we need to start thinking about these new paradigms fast. And then the, the second thing is the backdrop. And the backdrop is that the human brain, especially the developing human brain, was never built for the level of stimulus that it currently has. TikTok has created, you know, or has pioneered and led the way uh, to weaponize, you know, the attention of children to exploit the weaknesses of the human mind to, to essentially create these hyper-consumption minds that just mm. need something new every 15 seconds. They need mm. something that is extremely novel every 15 seconds, mm. um, you know, or else it doesn't hold their attention. Something hypersexualized, followed by a crashing car, mm. followed by someone jumping off a bridge, followed by someone with a Gucci handbag. Like mm. it just has to be extreme, extreme novel every 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. um, so this drives a truck through kids' brains. You know, we're, we're going to look back in horror that we yeah. unleashed this on our kids without any regulation. As society splits into different groups we're going to go what were we thinking like we yeah. were just giving cigarettes to two-year-olds so we have to kind of recognize that we've really gone down the wrong path with with allowing kids screen time unfettered screen time and we're going to have to figure out how do we pass regulation that basically says you cannot give social media to anyone under 18 mm -hmm. um, and you cannot have ai driven algorithmically superior content uh, put in front of kids um, while their brains are still developing really till age 25 um, mm -hmm, when the brain mm -hmm. fully forms. We have to do something about that or watch society burn. Um, so what's happening is there's this giant wedge that is going to drive through society. And on one side of the wedge, AI is helping you to create faster than you've ever created. And on the other side, it's helping you to consume more than you've ever dreamed. Those who get caught in the web of consumption, it's a complete bottomless pit. You will spend your entire life uh, glued to a screen, consuming, watching, listening, buying, unending uh, drain on, on, on your attention. And then those who learn to create with AI are going to spin up tens of million dollar companies with three or four friends. Um, so there'll be these, you know, mm. superstar little kids who, you know, by age 25, they've got multiple $10 million companies. They're insanely wealthy because of the digital assets they created. 
they'll have created software and media and IP and tech and they'll have brought it to life and made it entertaining and made it fun and all that sort of stuff. So you're going to have the hyper consumers and the hyper creators and it'll just be a chasm between the two. Like, you know, if you ever you've seen some of the films like Ready Player One, where the vast majority of people live in these caravan stacks where they stack caravans on top of each other and then a small number of people live the uh, private jet lifestyle type thing and everyone just goes into the metaverse to consume more stuff. You know, it's not as abstract as it once seemed. So education has to take that into concern. Wow. I feel (laughs) shell-shocked actually thinking about how you even begin to do that. And But we're all watching it. I mean, that's what when you're describing it, we're watching it. Yeah, yeah. And... I mean, I, a friend's kid is like crushed with anxiety and and overwhelmed by fear around different health concerns and sickness concerns that she sees on TikTok. Yeah. And yeah, for anyone listening who's who's in you know policy or government or regulation, like TikTok is just pure evil. Like, get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Regulate yeah. this thing out of out of existence if you possibly yeah. can, and and everything like it because because it created an arms race where YouTube started YouTube shorts and Instagram started reels. And it's that, it's that super fast algorithmic thing that is, is going to destroy the brains of young developing minds. Yeah. Woof. So that's a, you know, that's a whole other pressure. I mean, that's so interesting as well though, isn't it? In terms of the pressures that we're experiencing that we feel like we have no control over. And then what you started the conversation with about what you can control. And I think it's going to be incredibly important to be able to separate those two things. Otherwise, if we're sitting in the sphere of things that we can't control, it's going to do us in. Yeah. I have been a massive fan of stoicism and it's funny because because you read the Stoic texts, they were worried about similar stuff. <laughs> they had their own versions of it, but they were worried about stuff and essentially comes back to these cornerstone principles of concern yourself with things that you're in control of, starting with sleep, hydration, exercise, and diet. Yeah. You can control those four things. It's a really great ground zero of, of what you can control. Absolutely. Um, and you can also control that mostly within your own household. Um, and I would include in diet content, yes. um, yeah. the diet, the, the digital diet, the diet. Oh of yeah. 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 Great catch. You know? So it's like, uh, what's your, uh, diet of, um, food, but what's your digital consumption diet, um, yeah. can, can easily fit under that umbrella as well. Stoicism is just like, you know, they figured out, they figured out a lot of great tools early and they documented them. So essentially I, I often find myself going back to the stoic text. Yeah. Continuing the theme of what we can control, I want to reinforce a couple of points that Daniel has shared. Right back at the start of this conversation, he talked about the importance of creating a support system to buy back time. For Daniel, having a great assistant has meant that he can outsource the things he's not very good at, like scheduling or diary management. I can relate to that. By employing a great assistant, Daniel can then add his value where it matters most. I see this issue a lot with leaders I work with. They are missing great support, wasting their energy on things they're either not very good at or running to keep up with a diary that is way out of control and leaves them no time to add the value in the places that need it most. Having someone in support of managing your energy is increasingly vital. The other point that Daniel emphasizes more than once actually is the power of reframe in order to create perspective. Reframing through the lens of making it a game, a fun game of building a business as opposed to the high pressure of building a business. It reminds me of that wonderful Seth Godin statement. You can say, I have to do it, or you can say, I get to do it. I'm also reminded, 
it's the ex-teacher in me, of how much easier it is to learn when we're having fun. And as I said earlier, the brain can't distinguish between fact and fiction. So tell it you're having fun. What would be a useful way of reframing a pressure that you're currently facing to widen perspective? Oh, and one last point I really want to highlight is how when talking about the power of shed, Daniel added in a fresh and useful perspective regarding the D for diet, to take care of your digital diet, as well as your choice of food. Loving that, Daniel. Thank you. Now, if someone was listening to this podcast going, I need two things that are going to help me be better under pressure. What would be your offer, Daniel? If you just had to sum up two things that people could do. Um, short bursts of quiet time. Go sit on a couch for just three minutes yeah. and just, just close your eyes and detach. And those three or four minutes will pay dividends in terms of how well you perform after that. And just perspective, zoom out. Um, you know, there's this experience I had, I must've been 23, 24, something like that. Had this experience of, um, being up in an airplane, looking down on society and just thinking about how each person who I'm looking at in the city thinks of themselves as a really important person who's got a really important narrative going on. Uh, in their life. And I laughed and thought, ha, they're all just dots. Like they're just little dots. They don't realize, but they're getting like 90 laps around the sun. The first 10, they won't remember. And the last 10, they probably won't remember. So they got like 70 laps around the sun in the middle, um, which they think of as the most important time in history. And ultimately it's like a fraction of a second in cosmic time. And I kind of like was lording it over them thinking, ha, oh, you little dots thinking you're so impressive and important. Um, I'm looking out over Brisbane, this, this city. And then it dawned on me and I, I flipped it. I flipped it and imagined one of them looking up at the airplane and thinking, oh, there's just 150 little dots in there. And I'm just like dot three C, um, you know, <laughs> I kind of like at that moment, I had this transcendent moment um, where all of my identity for a few seconds washed away. And I had this real, it really hit me like all, all of my ego importance, um, identity just left. And I totally owned this idea that I'm just a dot. And it felt like this unbelievable sense of power, uh, and connection and, uh, weightlessness and egolessness and all of this. And of course, stupidly, as soon as it happened and I felt that sense, my ego kicked in and went, wow, you're experiencing something really profound here. <laughs> you're not just a dot. Look at this. Ooh, look what you've just experienced. You've just had a trans. Hey, dude, you've just had a transcendent moment. Right? And I'm like, shut up. I'm enjoying this. Stop it. Uh, <laughs> but I... I I've kind of spent my whole life trying to find little, trying to get back to that moment, that that yeah. that moment of complete like connection with the fabric of society, the tapestry of humanity, um, and it's just that kind of like oh, you know that that thing. So it's like if you can have those transcendent moments where you realize it's not that big a deal, like it's we're just having fun. So reframing, finding ways to reframe, finding ways to transcend, um, I think is 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 powerful. Perfect. Thank you, Daniel, so, so much. What a what a great way to start the morning. <laughs> Good stuff. I'm glad you enjoyed. 
<laughs> I enjoyed that. Me too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Better Under Pressure with me, Sarah Milne-Rowe. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and let us know what you found useful or what you'd like to know more about. Our aim is to share as many examples as possible of what people do to manage pressure for better and turn it into a positive relationship. If you're interested in any of the practices mentioned, check out my book, The Shed Method, or alternatively, you can find us at Coaching Impact or me on LinkedIn and Instagram. Better Under Pressure was produced by the fab team at Smart Cookie Media. Thanks so much for listening and until next time, goodbye.